This is Jeff Standridge, and this is the Innovation Junkies Podcast. If you want to drastically improve your business, learn proven growth strategies, and generate sustained results for your organization, you've come to the right place. Over the next half hour, we're going to be sharing specific strategies, tactics, and tips that you can use to grow your business, no matter the size, no matter the industry, and no matter the geography. Weekly, we'll bring in a top mover and shaker, someone who's done something unbelievable with his or her business, and we'll dig deep. We'll uncover specific strategies, tactics, and tools that they've used to help you achieve your business goals. Welcome to the Innovation Junkies Podcast. Hey guys, if you're looking to put your business on the fast track to achieving sustained strategic growth, this episode is sponsored by the team at Innovation Junkie. To learn more about our Growth DX, go to innovationjunkie.com backslash growth DX. Now let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Innovation Junkies podcast. My name is Jeff Standridge. Hey, and this is Jeff Amrine. Glad to be back for another episode. What do we got happening today? Well, we have a gentleman by the name of Greg Sattel. He's a transformation and change expert, international keynote speaker, and the best-selling author of Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. Uh, His previous book, Mapping Innovation, was selected as one of the best business books of 2017. Uh, He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, and he's been featured in other A-list publications like Barron's, Forbes, and Fast Company. And he's consistently ranked as one of the top uh, five of the top 40 innovation bloggers in the world. Greg Sattel. Greg, glad to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff and Jeff. We're the Jeff. Yeah, you only have to remember one first name on this deal. We, we try to keep it simple for our guests. <laughs> yeah, and you both have beards and glass. Like, if if, if you guys had a, a caricature, like, you, you wouldn't be able to tell, tell yeah. you. It's you know, there's artists. one of us is younger and better looking, right? Well, and, and, and contrary to what, contrary to a lot of people's assumptions, even though we're both named Jeff, we're not related. <laughs> you know, but if we were in West Virginia, there'd be some doubt about that. So. <laughs> my name's Jeff and here's my brother, Jeff. So That's right. That's right. And while, while we're on the lighter side of things, uh, Greg, one of the things we like to do to, as an icebreaker is to have kind of a random musing. And so today, the random musing is, what is your favorite junk food? Well, it's a little bit, well, there's a little bit of controversy there because uh, I'm from Philadelphia, so we eat cheesesteaks. But in yeah. in Philadelphia, they're not considered junk food. They're considered like one of the there. major food mm-hmm. groups. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, but hey, I always t- uh, tell people if you're ever in Philadelphia, the best cheesesteak in town is on me. So if you ever All find right. yourself here, look at me. So do you advise we'll you with or without? You gotta, you gotta ha- have them with. I, I don't see the, the, I mean, that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's really. what the, and it's always peppers, right? Onions, onions, with onions, the, onions. Okay, all right. It's been a while since I've been to Philly, but but I don't like the whiz. I don't. Uh, Not but, no yeah. cheese whiz. And and don't and don't go to Pat's or or Gino's. They're just that's just for the tourists. Or when you're, it's sort of late night, you know, after the bars close when you're good and drunk. You go no no offense to Pat or Gino. <laughs> 
They won't uh, be future spots. You know, funny enough, <laughs> uh, I I grew up with uh, Pat. Uh, well, my mother uh, knew uh, the family of Pat Oliveri, but they're they're long dead, of course. Oh, I got you. But you know, so we haven't not to speak ill of the dead. So I, I would have to say, um, probably one of my favorite junk foods and i can't go to a mexican restaurant and actually eat a meal because i fill up on the chips and salsa or the chips and queso you know so um so i i could i could sit and eat and munch around on those things all day every day man this is a hard one for me because i was I, i've got kind of a three-way tie and so i'm gonna indulge here and, and talk about all three one is uh uh traditional greasy salty popcorn that you make at home, not with an air popper. I, I love that. Gigantic chocolate chip cookies that probably ought to be outlawed because of the number of calories provide. But one of my all-time favorites, and this is both the south of the border U.S. and Canadian thing, we would call gravy fries, mm. and my Canadian buddies would call it poutine. poutine. I love that. Yeah. yeah, I could eat an entire you know salad bowl full of that stuff. So, and you, you actually it. you actually have a fourth one, bourbon. Yeah. And bourbon. Well, yeah, yeah, that was a controversy before the episode. I said, well, does bourbon count as a junk food? Because that would be high on the list for sure. Well, I'm a big bourbon guy. And uh, the interesting thing is that I spent a good deal of time in the former Soviet Union Hmm. and Eastern Europe. So, uh, of course, everybody knows that vodka is very popular there. Mm -hmm. But... Bourbon is considered very, um, uh, sort of uh, very fashionable. So if you drink bourbon, it's like very sophisticated, uh, and of course very American, and very new. Uh, you know, nobody drank bourbon in places like uh, Ukraine or Moscow or Kiev or um, or Warsaw or any of those mm-hmm. places uh, 30, 40 years ago. So it's it's sort you of... You make uh, lots of friends with a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, I guess. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they, they're they actually, you know, very sophisticated with the, you know, see a lot of Blantons over there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're exporting American culture very... Uh, uh, very... Uh, very effectively, yeah. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, let's talk Good about innovation, yeah. right? There you go. That's right. Let's let's talk about uh, yeah. Greg, you and your background a little bit. I, I I talked about your 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 short bio, if you will, but give us a little more depth into Greg Sattel and and who you are and what you do. Well, I spent about half my adult life uh, running uh, media businesses in the former uh, in. Uh, former Eastern Bloc countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the uh, uh, and then for the, the last 10 years, I've been really uh, writing and speaking and consulting about uh, innovation, but uh, more, more uh, recently, more focused on transformation. So mm-hmm. uh, getting change uh, ad- adopted and scaled. So your and book, overcoming uh, resistance. 
Yeah. yeah. Your book, uh, uh, Cascades, talks about creating a movement uh, that drives transformational change. So talk to us a little bit about this concept of a movement, what it looks like, what it is, and, and how you create a movement. Well, essentially, movements are, are about empowerment, right, rather than 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 plan and, and direct. But what's... What's sort of more interesting is is kind of how I came to the to the Cascade research, which was uh, I was running a major news organization during the Orange Revolution in in Ukraine in uh, in two thousand and four, and so uh, you know, and I, I experienced those events in in a almost unique way. In that, as a foreigner, I was I was something you know, often considered less than a full participant, but in my role, you know, running a, a major news organization, certainly more than a, uh, than a casual bystander. And what, what I remember most about those times is this feeling of incredible confusion. Nobody seemed to know what was going on and, or, or what would happen next, not the not the journalists I would speak to in the uh, in the newsroom every day, not the other business leaders and not the political leaders. There was just this mysterious force that nobody could uh, really describe, but nobody could deny that was moving things along. And, you know, w what amazed me is how thousands of people who'd ordinarily be doing very different things would all of a sudden stop what they're doing and start doing the very same thing all at once in perfect unison. And I, I thought to myself at the time, gee, you know, I'd really like to be able to do that. You know, here I am running this big company. I've got thousands of potential customers all buying different things, but I want them to buy the one thing I'm trying to sell them. And, uh, I had, you know, hundreds of, of, uh, hundreds of of employees that were smart ambitious bright people you know full of their own ideas but i wanted them to embrace the one or two uh, uh, uh initiatives that i thought needed to be priorities but of course i had no idea how to do any of that but i had this feeling if i could just bottle what i saw on the street as uh, streets of kiev i could do, you know that would be really powerful and then a couple of years later, I came across uh, some papers in network science, and I found that that the scientists had known for years about this mysterious force and even had a name for it. It was called a network cascade. And because of some recent breakthroughs, we now know exactly how these things work. And so that's kind of what got me hooked on learning more about movements and applying them to organizations. And then I met my friend Surja, who overthrows countries pr pretty much for a living. That's his job. And he had created this, you know, repeatable model for overthrowing countries. And I said, well, what if we tried to apply that to a business context, you know, to organizations and corporations and institutions? And that's what became the Cascades research. And what I found is not only does it does that work and, and very, very well, it seems to be the only thing that does work. And I didn't realize at the time that there was this kind of transformation crisis where 
70 or 80 percent of organizational transformations fail. And they don't fail because people don't understand the change, but because if a change is important, it is um, somebody, there's always going to be certain people who don't like it and they're going to work to undermine it in ways that are often dishonest and underhanded and deceptive. So that's what you need to overcome if you're going to really drive any transformational initiative within your organization. Uh, and so that's uh, that's what, what became Cascades, and, and that's the work that we do. You know, it's, it's very, very interesting, and, and we see that when we think about uh, power maps and we think about strategic selling and different things that we advise on. There's always an element of informal leadership that can be either positive influencers and champions or saboteurs. What, what did you learn about how to turn those people, either turn or neutralize them when you, you want the movement to take hold? What are some key insights there? Well, so, well, so I'll, I'll just, I'll, I, I'll throw a couple of things out very, very fast. Uh, and then we could, we can, um, uh, we can unpack any, any, any which one you want. The first is that uh, movements are about empowerment. Right. So you you want to start with people who are in, as in, enthusiastic about the idea as you are. Uh, one of the things that we see and, and one of the problems we see with traditional change management is they usually start the, the initiative with a big uh, 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 communication uh, program, like uh, a big bang. They, mm -hmm. the, the idea is to create a sense of urgency around change. And of course, that can rally people to your cause, but it also alerts those saboteurs that they better get started undermining you, or it might actually happen. So you instead, so you 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 want to start with the sort of mantra of the book is small groups loosely connected, united uh, with a shared purpose. So you want to start with a small group of enthusiasts and help them empower them to be successful. And to bring in others who can bring in others still. So you always, one of the things we say is you always want to start with a majority. Even if that majority is like three people in a room of five. Majorities don't just rule, they also influence. Uh, and you can always expand a majority out. As soon as you're in the mi minority, you will immediately feel pushback. I mean, almost like a car in whiplash. And we've all felt that. Like you walk into the room and all of a sudden that idea is not okay anymore. Uh, and when that happens, uh, you've gone too far and you have to retrench. Another uh, really important concept is uh, uh, focusing, identifying on shared values. Uh, so great example of this uh, is with agile transformations. So uh, when, when people want to uh, drive an agile transformation within an organization or evangelize agile methodology more times than not they start with the agile uh the agile uh uh uh, uh manifesto which of course you know is what makes people in the agile community passionate about agile but means almost nothing to people outside the community and can seem 
more than a little bit strange and can turn a lot of people off. Uh, so instead of focusing on those differentiating uh, uh, values, you want to focus on shared values like better quality projects done faster and cheaper, becoming a high performing organization. So that's the second point is is shared values. Uh, the uh, and uh, a, a third point is the the uh, is you want to create co-optable uh, resources. So people things that allow people to uh, take ownership of this change initiative and make it their own. And we have some tools as well, like the spectrum of allies and the pillars of support. Um, but. I'll stop there in terms of of concepts. I think for your types of uh, for your clients, I think those three concepts would would all be very useful. But I'd also like to give you something to avoid because this is something we see all the time. And that is that somebody high up in the organization comes up with an idea for change. Uh, usually somebody in the C-suite. And so they want to uh, to drive through a change initiative, they tap somebody like a high potential em employee to lead this change initiative. They tell them that, you know, they've got the full backing of the board or the executive committee or whatever the powers that be. Uh, and they're given a budget and they're told to, to go forth and, you know, really push this through because it really needs to happen. Uh, and and you know all you know uh, damn the port torpedoes all, all you know full speed ahead, and this person they 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 start you know they 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 do what they think they're supposed to do, which is go out guns blazing, start with a bang, have a big kickoff meeting, the whole thing, and about six months later, six to twelve months later, they they realize that they've been undermined this whole time. Everything's sort of ground to, you know, to a halt. This, this uh, change initiative that they thought was going to move their career into the, the sort of fast lane now threatens to derail it. That executive sponsorship has dissipated. They're, you know, on the hook for getting blamed for the whole thing. And that's usually when they come to us. And at that point, uh, most of the time we actually can save them, but sometimes we can't. And it really doesn't need to happen that way if they start planning, uh, doing actual change planning from the start. Hey, folks, we'll be right back with the episode. But first, we want to tell you about a limited opportunity to take advantage of our Growth DX. For a limited time, we're offering a free strategy call to see whether our unique diagnostic tool is right for you. Go to innovationjunkie.com backslash growth DX to learn more. You, you talked about shared values, Greg, and, and in your process, you have this concept of, of a genome of values. Uh, so unpack the, that concept of values a little bit further. You talk about you've got to change fundamental right, so, beliefs. And, and so talk a little bit about that a little more, if you would. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So first of all, um, Values is probably the over, most overused term in 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 business, especially mm -hmm. when there's consultants in the room, right? So mm -hmm. we always ask we we ask, okay, what are your values? And we and the, you know they they say the usual thing, 
uh, well, the customers, uh, you know, we value excellence, we value all these very nice things. And then we ask, what do these values cost you? Because if they don't cost you anything, if they don't act as real constraints, uh, they're, they're not really values. They're just platitudes. One of my favorite examples of this was Lou Gerstner uh, during the, the IBM turnaround in mm -hmm. the 90s, where um, he really needed to be credible. And I've interviewed over the years probably a few dozen people from that period, from every levels of the organization. And all of them mention one thing. He said he valued the customer, but even more importantly, he made it clear he was willing to forego revenue on every sale. And that was the only thing that made it real. That's the only thing that made it credible, not only internally, but externally to customers and partners and everybody else. Um, that and, and I never met a single person who worked in IBM from that time who thought that IBM would still be in business today if it wasn't for that. So that's the, that's the super important, that's the first step is to identify what your values really are. Or in other words, how are you willing to constrain yourself? What costs are you willing to bear to, to achieve your mission, to fulfill your purpose? Because if you, don't, if, if, you, if you don't know that, you haven't really thought it through. And other people, nobody else is, quite frankly, is going to take your change seriously. Much like Lou Gerstner, uh, uh, if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have been taken seriously. Shared values is something different. So shared values is a subset of your values. So when you think of, uh, and, and we call this the spectrum of allies, when you think of uh, the sort of map, uh, the, the terrain upon which the battle for change will be fought, and, you know, to be clear, it, it will always be a battle if the change is important and has the potential to uh, to affect people. So you want to map out who are your most uh, uh, active supporters, who are passive supporters, who's neutral, who's uh, passively uh, opposed, and who's actively opposed. And you want to think about what, who, uh, what of those values will be shared out by, by at least four out of those five uh, groups. And, and that's where you want to, uh, to sell. Um, very much like when we were talking about Agile, you know, uh, serving the customer is a shared value. You know, uh, being a high performing organization is a shared value. Delivering projects on time and on budget is most of the time a shared value. Uh, but one of the things that we found that's really interesting is one of the best ways to identify shared values is actually listening to that act, to, to your most active uh, opposition, to the people who hate the idea and who are trying to kill it. So, and here's the trick, and here's a discipline. You don't actually want to engage with those people, because remember, they're, they're trying to undermine what you want to achieve. And 
that is most likely not going to be an honest engagement. Uh, but what you do uh, want to do is you want to listen to them uh, because they will clue you in to uh, very often to what the shared value is uh, because they're trying to convince a lot of the same people you are. So that's how you identify shared values. And then that's what you want to focus on. So if it's uh, I, I'll stick with the example of an agile transformation uh, if it's uh, an agile transformation, not on those differentiating values of the agile uh, 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 manifesto, but that those shared values of uh, performance and uh, service and uh, excellence and so on and so forth. Very good. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just going to say it's. It, it, I had not. When you say any- go ahead, Jeff, are you sure you're not talking to yourself? <laughs> I'm never sure. Like, that. Sometimes I'm, t- I'm like, Greg, we got to get this going. We got to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like psych so myself up. I'm never yeah, sure like of anything I say. <laughs> but what I was going to what I was going to say is I, I, I've never heard anybody capture in the way you did the idea of of really considering what you're willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. for a particular value. And it made me reflect on uh, tough decisions we've had to make in another organization we run about what funding to pursue, because we pursue a lot of third-party funding for some of the stuff that we do in the in the startup venture ecosystem world. And and what, the, what we'd have to sacrifice if we took it versus what we really valued in the long run. And ultimately, we kind of came to the conclusion that based on our vision and our purpose and our mission, there was some funding we just weren't going to take because it didn't align. And we were willing to sacrifice what would have been an easier road because the funding would have been secured for a number of years to stay true to the value that we had, which was to enable and empower innovators and entrepreneurs. And in some ways it was freeing, even though there was the angst and the worry that, well, how are we going to, support this thing going down the road, it was liberating to actually just make that decision and stay true to our purpose and our, and our mission and not give up the autonomy. So maybe the value was the autonomy to choose our own direction at the behest of a funder that wanted to have a lot to say about what we did. So, so anyway, I mean, that's, you articulated that better, that particular point better than I'd heard it before. That's, it's really a good point. But I screwed everything else up, right? <laughs> no, no, not yet. But we'll let you know if you do. Well, what I want to do, uh, we've been talking about creating movements that drive transformation. I'd like to talk a little bit and give our listeners a little bit of a glimpse of your, your uh, preceding book called Mapping uh, Innovation. So talk a little bit about the premise of that uh, for our listeners as well. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, uh, you know, I spent about 20 years uh, – running organizations and like uh, most people who run organizations I felt an incredible pressure to innovate but I wasn't quite sure on how to go about that uh, and whenever I, I I looked for answers it it seemed like everybody had their own way of innovating and when you you know, when you looked at what one person did, like you would look at, let's say, design thinking, 
And you'd say, oh, wow, that really seems good because, uh, you know, Steve Jobs apparently loves it. And, you know, uh, Ideo has built this fantastic business around it. And Stanford has, you know, uh, an entire school dedicated to it. So, you know, that that must really be the best way to do it. And then you you look at it and it says, okay, well, you, you, you know, you identify the your users needs and uh, uh, and then you 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 work back and you rapidly uh, prototype and iterate towards a, a radically uh, better solution and you say wow that really seems smart that that must be how you do it until you read Clayton Christensen and disruptive innovation and the innovators dilemma and he says that's exactly how good companies go out of business because you know, they listen too much to their customers when the basis of competition has shifted. And so, you, well, how can those two things be right? And then there's like open innovation and lean startups and, uh, you know, and basic research and on and on and on. And what I found was that, you know, if there was ever anybody said, you know, this is how you do it, somebody else who was equally or even more successful did it in a completely different way. So I, what I finally came up with was that innovation is really about solving problems. And there are as many different problem, uh, different ways to innovate as there are different problems to solve. And uh, along the way, I came up with this an idea of an innovation matrix and a method for classifying problems uh, so that you could identify the solution best fit to solve them. And in doing the work, what I, I found is that most organizations uh, have one particular way in which they innovate. And they do pretty well, uh, you, you know, for a while until they come up with a problem that doesn't fit. And then they just kind of spin their wheels and they're not sure why, because this was the particular solution that had worked with them for them for uh for often years uh sometimes decades uh but what they had inadvertently done was pick the solution and tried to make the problem fit that solution rather than the other way around of identifying and classifying the problem and then adapting the solution to that so uh, we still do that work. We still work with uh, with uh, with clients on that, um, but our focus has has somewhat shifted to uh, the 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 transformation where it, uh, that seems where today the greater need is on um, scaling and uh, getting uh, solutions adapt, adapt uh, adopted and scaled. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing you talk about the uh, the movements that drive transformation and then also getting a glimpse uh, for our listeners of your mapping innovations work as well. Um, one final question I have for you is uh, maybe a short uh, anecdote or, or what have you. If, uh, you talk about you get called in a lot of times where executives uh, thought they were going to be on the fast track. They're 
their change initiative has stalled and they see themselves kind of hanging in the balance or their career hanging in the balance. Uh, any particular anecdotes of maybe a particular situation, no names, of course, uh, and, and how you guys walked in and helped them salvage that particular initiative? Uh, we, we basically, we go back to the beginning. And, mm. and 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 restart how we start. But they always get out in the same way. You need to find somewhere, some place uh, that you can that you can actually show that this change works. And you need to f identify people who are uh, enthusiastic and want it to work, uh, who will actually, you know, help you work through the inevitable glitches. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the concepts we like to talk about is the hair on fire use case. So mm -hmm. you don't want to look for, you know, in, in, in marketing class, we were all told to look for the, the uh, largest addressable market, where if you're doing something new and different, that can often kill you, actually. Mm -hmm. You want to find somebody who, who needs, has a, a problem they need solved so badly they almost literally have their hair on fire and if you can work on with those people to actually make this change successful successful and solve a problem they actually have then you have a base that you can build from uh and and you start there so the first thing that you want to do is is scale back mm -hmm. where uh you're not going to transform an entire organization all at once scale back, find that small piece wherever you can find it, where you can actually get a foothold, find people of like minds who are enthusiastic, want it to work, and can actually make it work somewhere. And then you can build from there. Fantastic. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure having you with us today. Uh, we appreciate you for taking the time out of your, uh, I know, hectic and busy schedule to, to join us here on the Innovation Junkies podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And anytime you're in, 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 in Philadelphia, uh, you know, uh, best cheesesteak in town is on me. But uh, don't go to Lincoln Financial Field wearing a Dallas Cowboys uh, jersey. That's uh, <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> that might be innovative, but it's not yeah. a path to success. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, so this, has been a, this has been another episode of the Innovation Junkies podcast. Thanks for joining. Hey folks, this is Jeff Amrine. We want to thank you for tuning in. We sincerely appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the Innovation Junkies podcast, please do us a huge favor. Click the subscribe button right now and please leave us a review. It would mean the world to both of us. And don't forget to share us on social media.